That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy. Like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. From the offices of Create and Cultivate, I'm Jacqueline Johnson, and this is Work Party, a podcast for women who are redefining the meaning of work on their own terms. This season, we're bringing in leading female powerhouses to take a deep dive into the topics that matter most to you. Technology, money, marketing, entrepreneurship, you name it, we're covering it all. Tune in every Wednesday for career, real talk, and BS-free advice from the best in the biz. Ready to create and cultivate the career of your dreams? Well, welcome to Work Party, the podcast. stats don't lie. Companies perform better when they have female leaders in addition to males. And yet, just 5% of all venture funding supports women CEOs. This isn't just about equality, it's about economy. If we want to see higher stock returns, higher overall profit, and a higher return on equity, we have to hire women and put them in leadership roles. Don't believe me? Let's look at some of the stats. Companies with female founders perform 63% better than investments with all male founding teams. Businesses founded by women deliver twice as much per dollar invested than those founded by men. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Unfortunately, when you see how wide the gap is between where females are today and where we want to be, the path to equality can seem daunting and impossible at best. Thankfully, with people like Victoria Pettibone leading the charge, we are moving the needle towards an equal future. She strongly believes we can achieve this vision if we invest financially in female leadership. In this episode of Work Day, I sit down with Victoria to discuss how she's doing just that as the managing director at Astia and why investing in women is investing in everyone, along with some solid advice for female founders on how to build a booming crisis-proof business. So let's get into it. So welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Well, as the managing director for Astia, you are committed to investing in women, obviously. Can you walk us through the company, how it launched, why it launched, why you launched it, and what companies have you helped to launch? So big opening question. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, I'll do my best to, uh, to get it all in. So, so Astia is an organization uh, that's committed to leveling the investment playing field for women leaders and their teams in the high growth space. Um, and it was founded 20 years ago by a woman named Kate Muther, who was the CMO of Cisco at the time. Um, and she was you know, very frustrated at the lack of venture capital flowing into women-led companies um, and started, started it as the women's technology cluster um, within Cisco and then spun it out of Cisco 
uh, self-funded it for a few years, and then it, it evolved into uh, a 501c3 in its own right, um, and it was renamed Astia. And it started out as an incubator, so providing office space for companies. And at the time, a Stanford business case was, was done about it. And one of the takeaways was that physical space was, was not improving women entrepreneurs' chances of getting funding. But really what was making the difference was access to networks. And unfortunately, networks still today tend to divide along uh, gender and race. Um, and so what Astia did was went out and really focused on building a global network of advisors and investors um, and moved into an accelerator model. So the next kind of iteration of Astia was an accelerator where it wasn't about the office space, but it was about connecting companies with advisors and networks and investors. And again, always with the mission to drive capital to these companies. And then another interesting learning that happened at that time was around the semantics, was around the word mentor, because a mentor sets up a hierarchy between, especially when it's a male mentor and a female mentee, and capital doesn't flow well in those situations. And there's power structure and, and all of that. And so we switched from using mentor to using advisor. And almost overnight, we saw the rate of investment increase because advisors very often invest in the companies that they're advising. And peers often are advisors to peers. So it's just an interesting realization that happened along the way. And the other thing that happened at the time after about six years of being an accelerator, the market, the landscape hadn't moved at all in terms of venture capital supporting women-run businesses. You know, it was still at that sort of 2% number that it hovers around. And at the time, we analyzed the companies that, that we had been sourcing and selecting to work with and found that had Astia been investing, we would have had top quartile fund performance. So armed with that performance data, which really kind of gave us teeth to this whole thesis of investing women in women is a good thing to do, we had the performance data and we saw the landscape wasn't moving. So then Astia moved into investment activity, and that was in 2013. So fast forward to now, we run um, an angel investor network that makes investments. We run a fund, an Astia fund, that can also make larger investments. Um, and throughout the past, I guess going on seven years now, we've made 113 investments into 54 companies. And counting, I have a, I have a deal closing next Tuesday, so we're very active. Um, and all of the companies have at least one woman in a position of leadership, holding equity and holding significant influence. Amazing. Thank you so much for that overview. And I'm so excited to have you here because truly investment, VC, capital, all the accelerators, all these things that you're mentioning are so important to the Create and Cultivate community. And honestly, one of the most asked about topics that we sort of get um, sent to us. So um, I want to talk a little bit about the difference between an accelerator and being a true investor yeah. uh, and understanding, um, you know, kind of what the deals that you do do look like, like you said, high growth. So can you talk a little bit about what that means? So, so a high growth company is going to be a company that needs that large infusion of capital to really scale quickly. And so it's different from, say, a restaurant, which can constantly generate cash um, and can, can certainly be a good investment, can generate a return, but it grows at a more steady pace over time 
versus a company that's a, a technology company where you put in that large amount of upfront capital and the customer growth just skyrockets. It goes on that, that J curve. And so those would be the, the two differences. And then the high growth companies tend to, rather than paying back a dividend throughout time, usually what ends up happening is the investor has their money in that company for a, a you know, number of years. And then there's some event, like the company gets sold to a larger company, or it could have an IPO, you know, some large liquidation event where the investor then gets the money back at that time. And it, hopefully it's a, a multiple of what they originally put in. Your business is more than the goods you sell or the services you provide. It's the heart of the economy. That's why I'm teaming up with MasterCard to support entrepreneurs by sharing my tips and advice to help grow their local business. Like how investing in women-led businesses can be a catalyst for wider growth. Let's start with some stats. According to the Small Business Administration, women are launching 1,100 businesses every single day in the United States. And overall, their businesses account for nearly 40% of the country's businesses. Collectively, they're generating $1.4 trillion in revenue, trillion with a T. These figures speak for themselves. Just look at the female entrepreneurs we spotlight on Create and Cultivate on a weekly basis to see a glimpse of the incredible businesses women have built and the impact they've made. As the stats indicate, investing in these businesses in a monetary capacity will provide obvious benefits, but we can invest in other ways too. After all, investing is a broad term and can feel intimidating. Beyond funding them, we can partner with them, shop their products or services, or give them a simple shout out on social media. By doing these things, you widen your business network and open the door for future opportunities and collaborations. As we all know, the future is female. And in this case, the future is female-owned businesses. For more tools and resources, go to mastercard.us slash mainstreetrecovery. That's mastercard.us slash mainstreetrecovery. Together, we can start something priceless. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. And I'm Andana Dayani. We decided to create a podcast to introduce you to the people who inspire us most. These are the dissenters. The people who just made a decision one day to break down the establishment and build a new one. In the greatest times of grief or even the most ordinary of circumstances, many heroes will rise. You just have to take that first step. So please tune in this May for our premiere episode and catch a new episode every Wednesday. We can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts. There are heroes everywhere. Discover them. Become one. But inclusivity is really at the brand DNA of what you do. Obviously, you focus on women, um, but I want to talk a little bit about why investing in female founders and particularly women of color is so important in having such an impact right now. Yeah. Well, and it it's so... I'm glad we're talking about this because obviously with everything going on in the country in this past couple of weeks, um, the issue of race is top of mind. And, you know, Astia, as a mission-driven organization that's about inclusion, um, we stand with those who are standing for justice and, and equality and racial equality. And it's so important to be instilling those values in all of our work and the processes that we use. Um, and And to that end, you know, over a year ago, we applied for and received a grant to invest in women of color founders. And it's a part of a larger 
endeavor to look at what are the barriers to investment into women of color that that we can reduce, that we can play a part into making a difference in. And as a part of this, we began to track race of our entrepreneur applicants so that we could get a baseline, begin to quantify the impact of our processes on driving investment towards companies that um, are founded by women of color, and then making investments and working to increase investment into those companies. And we have a long way to go. And it's really important that we get it right, but it's work that we're very committed to. And so that's one of the areas we're thinking about in terms of increasing capital. It's not you know, when you say women, it ignores the fact that the experience for a woman of color entrepreneur is very, very different, obviously, for than a than a white woman raising money. And the numbers are are much, much worse for women of color in terms of access to capital. So, and why it's all important. I mean, <laughs> obviously, I'm speaking to the choir here, right? Um, you know, on the one side, there's the business, the good business sense that women are underfunded and there's more and more data that shows that the more diversity you have of perspective around a table, the better decision-making that happens. So you have better performance when you have different perspectives, which includes gender and includes race. Um, And then there's the other side of it, which is that the world we live in is is a diverse world and we want to make sure that products are being created and medical devices are being created and technologies are being created that apply to all different people and all cultures and all, you know, I mean, the example I always think of is that, you know, the face recognition technology, there's stories that it's, you know, preliminary face recognition technology is built by a bunch of white dudes. And so it only recognizes white dudes, you know, I mean, that's not helpful in this world. So you need to bring different perspectives and, and people around the table. And obviously gender and race are both very important in there. Absolutely. Um, And so you yourself are an active angel investor who's invested in hundreds of companies, Um, but this is another area where women are greatly lacking. So twofold question, can you explain what angel investing is for those listening who don't know um, and why you stepped into this role and maybe some of the companies that you've invested in? Um, And two, one of the questions we get a lot at Create and Cultivate is how do I find an angel investor? So I would love for you to kind of give us a little overview of that. Sure, sure. So angel investors are individuals who are investing into privately held companies. Um, And there's sort of two categories of angel investors. Um, There's accredited investors and non-accredited. And that's a definition created by the SEC. An accredited investor is someone who has over $1 million in assets, not including their home, um, or an income that is over $200,000 a year for you know, kind of consistently, at least two years and continuing. And, it, and it's 300000 if you uh, have a spouse. And the reason there's that definition, it used to be that, that only accredited investors could invest directly into privately held companies. And the reason was because it's very, very high risk. Angel investing is a very high risk activity because you know, one in 10 companies succeed, is what they say. Um, and so the government doesn't want people losing their their house and their livelihood um, on this very high risk type of investing. On the other hand, it's very high. It can be very high reward. You can get very, very large returns as you sometimes read about in the news. And so then the Jobs Act, when that was passed, opened up that definition to allow anybody to do angel investing. But there are some restrictions around how much a non-accredited investor can invest. And the company, when it raises money on the company side, the company has to decide whether it will 
take only accredited investors or accredited and non-accredited. And if they take non-accredited investors, there are also some additional sort of regulatory hurdles they have to, you know, kind of reporting requirements that have to be done. Um, so that's angel investing and who can do it. So really anybody can do it. It's just there are some limitations if you're non-accredited. And in terms of how to find angel investors, I think there are a couple of things. First of all, there are lots of angel groups. So Astia runs a program called Astia Angels. And our angel network, they pay a membership fee to Astia and they're a part of a group and we have weekly calls and we do things as a group and look at deals together as a group. Each angel makes their own decision at the end of the day in terms of what they want to invest in, but we do the work together. We do the due diligence, you know, talk about deals, et cetera. Um, so there are lots of angel groups um, and that can be a really great way to access angel investors as most of the groups have some sort of application process or way to submit you submit your materials, et cetera. And then the other thing, I think, you know, through LinkedIn and through forums like that, I think people can start to get to know angel investors. I, so much of early stage fundraising and investing is about relationships. So it's about building relationships. And I think building relationships with advisors, even if they are not investors, many people who serve as advisors to companies know investors. So it's building relationships um, one at a time and asking those relationships to make introductions to the next set of relationships, to the next set of relationships. Um, so it's a slow, a slow build of building that network and then also you know, reaching out to, to groups that you may not have heard of before. Amazing advice. Okay, so you mentioned um, early growth. So you work with a lot of companies that are in the early growth phase. What are some of the biggest challenges most companies face during that crucial period? And what are some of the common pain points that you see? And what advice do you give them to overcome? Yeah, one of the big hurdles is that that very first sales hire. Because as a CEO, when you go out to start a company, you're the salesperson in the beginning, right? And, and if you're a good salesperson, you're going to raise money because that's part of raising money is that sales process. You know, it's very similar. And so you go out there and you're starting your company and you've raised some money and you're now you're doing your sales and people love your company because it's your baby. It's your idea. You're passionate about it. You, you do a great job selling it. You're getting some revenue and now you don't have time to do the sales. You need to bring in a salesperson. And that's a place where I see time and again, companies stumble because nobody's ever going to sell the company as well as you do, you know, and it's really, really hard to find a really good salesperson. And oftentimes a startup is at that stage where they don't feel they can pay that person very much. So they can't attract a top person. So they attract somebody who's not top. And then that person, you know, fails at meeting the sales goals and the company stumbles. And then it's harder to raise that next round of funding because you haven't hit the goals that you would set out at the last round. Um, so that's an area that is just uh, most companies struggle and it, and it often takes them one or two tries to find that right head of sales. In terms of advice, I think from the get-go, you should be thinking about that you are going to need that person. And so even at day one, when you can't afford to hire that person, start building those relationships, start building that advisory network, start finding exceptional salespeople to bring into your world and, and, and just you know, give some advice and open their networks, et cetera, and start building who those potential salespeople might be. And what I've seen happen is some companies 
build a relationship with somebody who who who's really loves what that new company is doing and it gets to the right inflection point where that great salesperson is ready to leave the place they're at and go to their new opportunity and if they come in early they can get a bunch of equity in the company which could be very valuable if they really see the potential of the company so you can often you know find a way to bring somebody on pay them less you know you, you can't afford to pay them as much as they should be paid but you can you can give them the equity in the company, if they're really jazzed up about what you're doing and the potential of the company, then that kind of arrangement can be made. And, and then, then you're able to avoid those, those challenges with that, that salesperson. I can relate very much to this. I think that's such a, such a good point. And it is challenging. I think talent's really hard to find, like yeah. really good people. And like you said, when you're starting out, you might not have the means to be able to give them, you know, these dream packages that they're getting offered at other companies, you know, that are huge and have a lot of resources. So, I mean, that's incredible advice. So let me throw out some statistics. Companies with a female founder perform 63% better than investments with an all-male founding team. And businesses founded by women deliver twice as much per dollar invested than those founded by men. So knowing this, what do you think the challenge is with getting investors to invest in women? Like, what do you think the root of it is coming from knowing that these stats are showing that women are very lucrative to invest in? I know. It's crazy. You know, I have seen some research that says that the more data there is supporting something, if somebody's already decided they don't believe it, it almost has the opposite effect where the more data it is, the more entrenched in their wrong ideas they become. Isn't that strange? It's, <laughs> it's like, no, I've shown you the data. And it's like, oh. no, no, I mean, I even believe more that it's just, that's not the case. So something like some weird psychology is going on. But, um, you know, what I love about Astia is that Astia is about doing right? There's so much talk out there about the importance of supporting women, investing in women, blah, 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 blah. And I almost feel like the more talk there is, the less companies do because they can like hide behind the fact that they're talking about it. But at Astia, we just got to the point in 2013 where we said, all right, this problem still exists. We're going to just start doing it. We are going to start investing. We are going to put the dollars where, you know, where, put the money where the, where the mouths are. And I, I think that's the only way to change it is just to go out and invest in those companies if you're able to invest. You know, do what you can to drive investment dollars towards the companies if, if you yourself are not able to invest. I think it's only by investing and then getting fantastic exits and um, laughing all the way to the bank that other, other people are going to change their minds about this. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I hear you on that. So, um, you know, one of the stories I listened to, um, I think it was on how I built this with the founder of Rent the Runway. And she talked about how when she went into the room with all, you know, white male investors and talked about the business, they liked it, but they couldn't understand it because it was not for them. Um, you know, they weren't renting dresses or going to parties and having to dress up. And like a lot of them, I remember her saying, were like, well, let me talk to my wife about this or let me yeah. talk to my assistant about this. And knowing that, what suggestions do you have for women that are going into the room to pitch to ensure that they're getting the right message out to ensure that they can get the, that money when they're pitching to a room that might not understand the concept of their business, which is built for women? Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. We always say at Astia, let's not fix the women, let's fix the system. And so what I think about when you tell that story is we need more women 
investors. We need more women venture capitalists. We need more women in that decision-making role so that the women entrepreneurs don't have to change their pitch. Because I feel like as women, we're always trying to do things differently, fix and like mold ourselves into what the investors are going to want. And I would like to um, see the investors change and the system change so that women don't have to. And I think it is, I think there are, you know, we are, there are more and more women entering venture capital. And I find that very um, encouraging. And then in, on the fund side, there are the, the limited partners, people who invest into the funds. Many of them are starting to have mandates to invest in what you call emerging managers and, and women managers and managers of color. And so the more that we can encourage the institutions and the pension plans to set aside funding for diverse managers and women managers, those managers then are going to be you know, making the decisions of who to invest in. And that will ensure that more entrepreneurs who are women and entrepreneurs of color are being understood in the room. Yes. Yeah, so the larger, the larger circle definitely needs to shift in general in the system itself. Um, so, okay, let's talk about diversification of revenue. So can you talk a little bit about people who are starting a company who want to diverse their business revenue streams, but don't know where to start, what your recommendation is and why it's important to diversify? Yeah. I mean, it certainly depends on the sector because on the flip side of that, I see a pitfall of startups is sometimes that they're trying to pursue too many revenue streams or too many business plans. And then really what they need to do is focus on one. And so sometimes it's important to kind of explore which, which ones are going to be successful, and then, but then really commit to those and not try to be everything to everyone. So I would say that's the, the flip side of that. But it is important, you know, different types of revenue streams have different sales cycles. And so that's important to think through. You know, if you're going to do something direct to consumer, you can make it sell very quickly. And then you can just, you know, add other kind of product lines or other SKUs. But if you're going to do something B2B where you're selling to a, a business, business to business, that's a much longer sales cycle. But on the other hand, the revenues can be much, much higher and then they can be recurring. So you don't have to go out and spend you know, all the money to get that new customer again and again. So. I think it's not an easy answer. I think it really is dependent on the company and what sector they're in. But I think it's important to think through the timelines as well as, you know, what, what kind of salesperson is going to be able to sell to those different customers, those different types of customers to bring in those different revenue streams. So I think it's a bit of a, of a patchwork. And I think that's where advisors really play an important role because there's so much you don't know you don't know, you know, and somebody who's been through it and has has been through pricing strategies and and you know all of that kind of stuff can really help you not make all the mistakes yourself so you don't you're not just learning by making mistakes you're actually getting some some good insights from somebody who's been through it before Absolutely. So I want to touch a little bit on COVID-19. Um, so obviously the overnight loss of revenue has been devastating for small business owners, large business owners, pretty much everyone. What are some of the specific challenges businesses will continue to face as a result of COVID-19? And what strategies can they implement now to hit the ground running once we you know, come out of this post-pandemic? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, th- I don't think there will be a post-pandemic I think the world is evolving into something very different. And so I think those entrepreneurs that will succeed are already thinking creatively about how things are changing and, and what, you know, it's going to be a constant evolution 
and, and the world is looking so different already, you know? And so I think that's important to, to, to be thinking about. And what I don't, I think the unknown, the big, well, there's so many unknowns, but consumer spending is really a question mark in my mind because the economy is really in a tough spot and it's going to get tougher. And how is that going to impact consumer spending over time? I think I don't have the answer for that, but certainly that's going to be something that changes quite a bit. But then there's opportunity, right? Because people are spending in different places and there's obviously opportunities coming down the road uh, from, you know, different business opportunities that, that do come from this. So um, the good thing about being a startup is you can be nimble. You know, the larger companies are going to have a much harder time pivoting and adjusting, but at smaller startups can really shift their business plans as necessary and take advantage of new opportunities that we might not ever have thought of. And then those companies, we have a, a company in the live events space, which is obviously having to shift. And right now she's spending time focused focusing on building her user base and, and the stickiness of her users so that when events can start happening, um, she's ready to go. And then obviously thinking through virtual, you know, virtual events as well. But I do think it's important to have many different strategies uh, kind of ready to go. I love your point about startups being able to pivot quickly. So what is your priceless money tip for small business owners? Like what is something they should be thinking about constantly yeah. when it comes to money? Yeah. So if you're starting a company or if you've started a company, you obviously believe in the full potential of it and that's going to be hugely successful. Otherwise, why would you start? <laughs> and so that means when you're hugely successful, you're going to be audited. You're going to have audited financials. You're going to have a, a board. You're going to have a finance committee. And so my advice is to start with that mindset now, even if, even if you're just a one-person shop you know, treat your financials as if they're going to be audited and treat your board committee, you know, even if it's you and one other person, um, get into the practice of reporting out and, and doing quarterly reports and, and all of that. It feels like it's unnecessary work right now, but if you get in the habit of it, it becomes a part of the DNA of your company so that, it, it, there's never that weird transition of, oh, now I have to get my books together. You know, it's always been part of what you've done and, and it will be much easier later on if you've always had that kind of rigor from the beginning. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about mentorship. Um, you know, obviously mentorship is super crucial in the early stages or advisors, like you were saying earlier. <laughs> So who's been a mentor for you and how have you been mentoring these companies that you're working with um, going forward? And what does a mentor look like and has it changed over time for you? Um, yeah. So uh, there have been so many, but I think of one of the people who's been a terrific advisor to me is um, Jean Sullivan, who is a pioneer in the venture space, um, one of the early women investor VCs. And she's um, currently on the board of, of Astia and she's just been a terrific advocate and advisor throughout uh, my career here with Astia um, and really moving into this into this role. So, and how I think about mentoring um, or or advising uh, is is more about you know uh, I certainly 
am able to be an advisor to the companies we work with. But I also bring on a lot of interns at Astia, and that's been really important to me. Um, again, going back to the importance of getting more women into venture capital, I really have enjoyed and benefited from um, bringing sort of constant stream of, of interns who participate with me on due diligence and you know, negotiating the deal and running the angels and, and all of that. So I do think it's really important to constantly be um, encouraging people to step into this area. So that's what I would say. And how has it changed over time? I think just understanding that we really need to advocate for one another and open the door for one another. And I think not just gender, but, um, but that's very important around race as well, that it's really important to make sure that um, everyone is, is getting opportunities and that if you're in a position of opportunity um, or privilege, that you're, that you're doing whatever you can to open that door so that others can step into that as well. So given your role and what you're doing, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would love to know, what are three crucial elements everyone should include in a pitch deck when raising money and presenting to potential investors? Um, sure. Uh, I think that's pretty easy. The problem you're solving. So what's the problem? What's your solution? And why you? Amazing. Those three things. So for you, you know, you've had such an impressive career, but it hasn't been without hurdles. So if you go back to the beginning of your career journey, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself? So I think it's the advice that I still need to give to myself all the time. <laughs> and I think a lot of women are going to relate to this, which is don't be so hard on myself. You know, I think women are just so hard on themselves and it's okay to make mistakes. And in fact, you, I am where I am now because of mistakes that I've made and I've learned from, and that's the only way you grow. And it's funny, I have two young kids and I see them getting upset at themselves for making mistakes on their homework or whatever. And I'm really trying to instill in them this lesson of like, it's okay to make mistakes. It's good. It's all good. Learn from it, move on. You'll become a better person. Um, so that's the advice that, um, I wish I'd given myself, but I, I still need to give to myself. I still I, give it to myself. I feel you on that one for sure. <laughs> um, what has been a priceless moment in your career? Um, so I'm going to go back to my entrepreneurial days. I started as an entrepreneur in the arts, in the media space. I used to produce theater and develop film projects written by women. And um, all the theater I produced was written by women. And I ran a, an outreach program for teenage girls. That was this amazing media literacy program. And so back in those days, um, I think really the highlight was uh, the first time I got a New York Times review of a production, a theater production that I produced. And it just was such a validation because, you know, in theater, at least in New York City, you, you know, it's the New York Times, that's the review you, you need to get to, to, you've really made it when you've gotten your first New York Times review. And it had been many years in the, in the making. I'd had productions that had not gotten the New York Times critic there and finally got to the point where we did. And it was just, it was just an amazing moment. And it was back in the day when everything was in print, you know, so I, you know, went down to the newsstand at midnight or whatever it was and got the newspaper and there it was. And uh, that was, that was a definitely a priceless moment. I love that. What a great story. And I totally understand that feeling. It, it feels nice to be validated for your work. Well, thank you so much for your time, Victoria. This was so helpful. Thank you. It was great talking with you. Um, and this was a lot of fun. Have you bought your copy of Work Party, the book? 
part career manifesto, part practical business advice, Work Party the Book is everything I wish I knew during my early years as an entrepreneur. The ups, the downs, the things I learned and the women that helped me to make it happen. Just like in our podcast, Work Party the Book does not shy away from the nitty gritty details you need to know. If you hope to start your own business or become the HBIC at your current gig, we're here to help you out. Available in hardcover and audiobook on Amazon, also on iBooks at Target and your local bookstore. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Work Party, the podcast. If you felt inspired and learned something new, let us know in a review on iTunes and check us out on social at Work Party. For every episode, we have downloadable resources available on workparty.com so you can put these tips and tools into action for your own business. Thanks again for listening. And as always, work hard, party on.